So did you get my note from Mark this week? Yes? Okay, there's a lot of you that are clueless, which means we don't have your contact information. We'd love to send you that. So it starts like this. A 50-inch screen for 218 bucks. Are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. Walmart, 50-inch screen for 218 And man, my mind was just going, where could I put that? <laughs> I mean, that is such a great deal. And it was just a reminder again, as John was just sharing about Advent, hey, this is the time of year where we commit. We look at each other in the face and go, we're not going to go crazy here. We're going to keep the focus on Christ. We're going to spend less on ourselves, right? We're going to spend less on ourselves. We're going to give more. What God has blessed us with, the people in need, we're going to share our love, God's love for all people this Advent. So we're going to keep the focus on Christ. He's going to grab our attention, not the doorbusters, not the Cyber Monday stuff that's behind us, and then there's everything coming still at us. And so we are glad that you're here this morning. And we hope that this is a time of just centering down and finding hope in the one who's come to help us. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What is it that you're facing right now in your life that's bigger than you? What is it that you're facing? Is it the health of a loved one? Is it your own health? Is it grief? There has been, I can't believe how many deaths. I I count at least seven that I know of in the last 10 days. People from our church, a couple I talked to yesterday says we were up here for my sister's, my youngest sister's funeral, and three days later, my oldest sister died. Two sisters in less than a week. Is, is that what's bigger than you right now? Is it perhaps some hard circumstances that have come into your life that, that has, has your, your faith kind of waning? It's, it's chipping away at your faith. And as your faith diminishes, seemingly your doubts are growing. What is it today that you're facing that's bigger than you? Where do you turn for help? Where do you turn for help? Grab a Bible. We're going to run into three people that need Jesus' help. A Roman centurion, a widow, and John the Baptist. And in the opening verses of, John, of Luke chapter 7, which is where you should be turning right now, Luke chapter 7, so find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel writers. We're towards the back of our Bible. If you need help, that's why the table of contents is there, right? So in Luke chapter 7, we have this beautiful Christmas truth that doesn't come in Luke 2, the Christmas text. And this truth is this, that in Christ, God has come to help us all. This is great news that we remember the second week of Advent. In Christ, God has come to help us all. A Roman centurion who has a sick, dying servant that he can't help, and he goes to Jesus for help. A widow from Nain, just the neighboring town of Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, who is just besought with grief and has to be filled with great fear because she's a widow, she's lost her husband, and she's in this funeral procession where she's going to bury her only son, her only child. And then John the Baptist, 
who's now not living life out in the wilderness, but looking through the bars, if you will, of the fortress that Herod threw him into on the hilltop at Machairus. And he is struggling with his present circumstances, wondering, is Jesus really the promised king? Because it sure doesn't feel like he's bringing in the new kingdom here. So we start with this Roman centurion who's asking Jesus for a miracle. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum's that village at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of his headquarters. He's already preached there, remember, back in chapter 4, doing lots of miracles. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. And you should underline this. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, myself, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, He was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So we've got this centurion. So who he is? He's a Roman. He's a soldier. He's an officer. He's a centurion who normally would have command over about a hundred men, not always a hundred, but around a hundred, hence the word centurion, right? He's got a servant who wasn't a Roman citizen. He's an officer who is under authority and has people under his authority. So it made me think of my son-in-law, John, who just made captain in the army this past year and went to captain's training course. And I said, John, I'm, I'm teaching through Luke 7 about the centurion. Would you read it and just give me your thoughts? I'd love to hear it from a guy who's in command. And one of the first things he said is, by the way, a centurion is equivalent to today's captain. And then he talked about this training course that he was part of. And he referenced the ADRP 6.0. Don't you love how the military does this? The Army Doctrine Reference Publication. And he talked about this whole thing that he had about mission command and this course that he had, the captain's career course, and he talked about what they learned and what they were being taught about the difference between command and control and the art of command and the science of control. He says command is all to do with authority. Control is all to do with the written and verbal orders, explicit, implicit instructions. And then he ferreted down into this whole matter of command. And he says, looking at, looking at this situation right here in Luke 7, you understand he totally gets 
the science of control. He's referencing that when he says, I say this, they do this. But he says there's something else going on. And that is his legal authority to command is bolstered by the personal authority that he has and how he treats the relationship he has with those in his life. And we've got this beautiful picture of a leader who's using his position and power for the good of others, for the benefit of others. And John talks about how that's a key ingredient in being an effective leader in the field in the heat of battle, is that these men don't just recognize your legal authority, but personally, they come under your authority. And you say, he says, you can see that dynamic going on in this man. Because he's a kind man, isn't he? He's kind to a dying slave, most likely not a Roman. He's kind to the Jews, right? They come to Jesus and say, look, he's a lover of our people. That's like not normal. A Roman, a centurion who's a lover of God's people. He's not just a lover in talk, but he's a lover in action. What's he done? He actually helped build the synagogue that you've been going to, the synagogue that you've been teaching from. That's this guy, a kind man, a wise and humble man, who with all of his resources understands he's come to a place where he doesn't have the resources for the situation before him. And that is, his sick and dying servant. Do you think he sent other servants to care for him? I'm sure he did. When they couldn't get him better, do you think he might have sent for some doctors? Yeah, there were doctors at the time. In fact, Luke is a doctor who's writing this. You bet he did. He had money. He had position. He had power. But after using all of that, he came to the end of himself to go, I can't fix this. I got to turn to someone that I've heard of that I believe can fix this. That requires humility, doesn't it? Not just wisdom. And it's hard, isn't it, to say, I need help. Oh, man, that's hard. It's hard even to say that to God. I need help. But he does. He reaches out to Jesus through these men who are the leaders of the synagogue that he'd had a relationship with, and he's leveraging the goodwill of that relationship to say, put in a good word to the rabbi for me. Would you please? And they do. And when they give the report, both the leaders and then that second delegation that comes out and says, look, we don't, the master said, he's not worthy to have you come into the house. He wasn't going to waste your time. He didn't feel like he even earned a place in your presence. So just say the word. Jesus makes it clear that he's not just a wise, humble man who's a kind-hearted leader, but he's a man of great, great faith who's taking Jesus at his word. Just say the word, and here's what I know. He'll be healed. Your word has greater authority than my word. I know what happens when I say a word. My lieutenants and my servants, they execute the order. And I know you've got that kind of authority. Why would he know that? Because he's heard. He maybe has seen. This is not this huge metropolis. This is a smaller town. Capernaum, that's where he's on post, 
And chapter 4, we know of people that were lame that are now walking and blind that are now seeing and deaf that are now talking. People have been possessed by demons and have been freed by that. He's heard the stories, perhaps, of Peter's mother-in-law that's been healed. He's seen it. He believes it. He says, you just say the word. Say the word. And my servant will be as good as healed. So what does he want? What does he need? He needs a miracle, right? It's not just he's sick. He's just having a bad day. I could really use his services. No, he's about to die. Jesus, would you touch him and restore him to life, to service again in my household? So what does Jesus do? Well, we kind of miss it. So, so much of the Bible we miss because we just don't live in that world. So what he does is, in hearing the request, he goes and he's moving towards the house. And we go, well, that was nice of Jesus. That's what we expect of Jesus. Now, the first century here is listening to this and going, what's he going to do? What's he thinking? You're not going into that house, Jesus, are you? See, because their, their world is divided neatly between Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean. People who worship one God and people who are idolaters and worship all kinds of gods. You don't go into a Gentile's house because you will be ceremonially unclean. You don't get near to those kinds of people. There, there's all kinds of tension going on, not just between Jew and Gentile, but between the Greeks and, as they call the others, the barbarians. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of tension. And what do we see here is Jesus is crossing Let's just call it what it is. It's a racial barrier. We don't see that. We're just thinking it's a centurion. No, it's actually, it's a racial barrier. It's a big deal in his day, what he's doing. And he moves with mercy and grace towards this man to entertain his request, honoring his great faith. And Jesus heals him, verse 10 says. We're not even sure if he used a word or not. Luke doesn't say, doesn't record it. The servant was found well by the time that delegation, the second one, got back to the household. He was good as new. So this centurion who needs help, who has lots of power, position, and money, turns to Jesus And he models for all the way to experience God's blessing, his healing, his salvation. It's through faith. He takes Jesus at his word. It's through his great faith. And I thought, man, I wish more of my prayers had the sense of verse 7. Say the word, and I know he'll be healed. So I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that ultimately we find healing, not always here in this world, but for sure in the next, when Christ comes or takes us home. I believe in the sovereignty of God, that he rules over all things, that his ways are best. And there's a lot of my faith in prayers that is just always kind of living within the tension, and that's healthy, but I think I'm too quick to just kind of give God the out, and I want to have more boldness of the centurion to say, just say the word. Because I know who you are, and I know what you can do. And I know you are a God who's for us, not against us. Say the word. What a beautiful picture we have of Christ, his willingness not just to approach this Gentile, but to allow this Gentile to share in the benefits of the kingdom that he's ushering in. 
This kingdom that promises restoration and reconciliation and wholeness for all people. That he would have a taste of that and his family would have a taste of that. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he does. So R.D. Uh, sent me a text. He said, Did, have you seen the New Yorker magazine? We were talking about the things going on in Ferguson, the non-indictment there. We were talking about the non-indictment in Staten Island in New York. And then uh, I, I, he sent me the, the, the picture. Here it is. The New Yorker magazine, December 8th. So they show, obviously, a divided city, right? Black and white. And then this graphic picture of the St. Louis Arch that has been broken. And then there was a pastor looking at that cover that said, you know, actually, Christ is the one who brings us all together. So look at the second picture, the cross. And it made me think of Ephesians chapter 2, where Luke's good friend Paul, remember he hung out with Paul, journeyed with Paul, wrote this to his friends at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 14, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The issues of our day, number one, are not new. They were going on in Jesus' day we know they were going on in the very, very, very beginning in the very first family. There's been division and there's been hatred and there's been animosity and some of that's been racially motivated and some of that has nothing to do with race and ethnicity. This is not new. This is not an American problem. This is a worldwide problem. I go to Europe and I hear my relatives and others talking about different ethnic groups and I go, wow. There's some strong feelings here. I go to Africa, strong feelings between tribes and people. But we know the end of the story, that every nation, tongue, and tribe, right? Every nation, every tribe, every tongue is gathered in unity before Christ. That's who he came for, all of us. That's where the storyline of the Bible is going, for all of us. And then we have to deal with what does it look like to be Christ followers in our day, living with the tensions that exist in our day and trying to sort it out. And here's what I want to say. Turn down the volume of all that you're listening to out there. Turn down the volume of even the emotions of your heart and turn up Jesus. Turn up Jesus. We need to hear more of Jesus. We need to behave more like Jesus. Jesus is our hope. There will be a day when the Prince of Peace comes and there will be peace between nations and peoples. There will be peace in our families. There will be perfect peace. And until that day, may we be focused on the Prince of Peace. I want to encourage you 
to move relationally towards someone who's not white. And have a conversation this week. Actually, having that conversation with people who uh, their world and their experiences in this world just are a little different than ours if we're white. It's really profound. It's not the answer, but it's part of this gracious moving towards with mercy and grace to listen, to listen, to move towards them, not away. Jesus is moving towards, and in the second story, he moves toward the suffering and identifies with it. I called Pastor G this week. I said, Alex, he hadn't heard that the uh, second non-indictment had gone down, and I knew this would be discouraging and hard. I said, Alex, I don't have anything eloquent to say, but I didn't want you to misconstrue my silence. I just want you to know I love you, that as a church we love Fountain of Life. We understand these are difficult days and raise lots of emotions and I just care about you. I, I didn't have any answers. I didn't, but I just meant a lot to Pastor G. It'll mean a lot to a friend that you may not know that well. To just say, you know what? I want to just better understand the dynamics here. You may go, I've got it already figured out. If you got it already figured out, I'm pretty sure you haven't tuned into Jesus enough. These are complex. There aren't easy answers. May we move forward like Jesus with compassion and grace. He turns to Jesus for a miracle, and he receives it. The second story, though, the widow, she's not turning to Jesus, and she gets the miracle she's not even asking for. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. It's just a few kilometers away from Jesus' hometown. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approaches the town gate, just see this in your mind's eye. As he approaches, he's coming up to the gate. A dead person was being carried out. There's a funeral procession. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. I remember when we lived in um, my dad's little village on our first sabbatical. Here's a picture of Baleg. So it's a town of 900. This is where my dad was born and raised. This is where our kids went to school for six months when we were there in 1992, again in 1998. In 1992, we came across a very different funeral. I've been, as a pastor, in lots of funerals. And almost every time of the 100-plus funerals I've been part of, We've gone in a car. A lot of times I'm sitting next to the funeral director in a hearse. And what caught my eye in Balag, Switzerland was, you you can see, they'll go back to to the village there. Can you go back one? Yeah, you you can see the church kind of on the left there. Little steeples kind of fading away in the trees. By the way, those mountains back there, that's France. That's how close it is to France. But they, they had the funeral there in the little church. And then what they did is, They had the coffin loaded onto a cart pulled by horses and everybody walked behind the coffin and the grieving family half a mile down the road to the cemetery. And it was very, very moving. And it was a very moving scene that Jesus 
happened onto as he walked up to the gate at Nain. And you can see in this next slide that even today, they use that buyer. It's a stretcher. They place the body. This is a current picture of an Orthodox Jewish funeral right there somewhere in Israel. I think it's Jerusalem. And so that's that buyer. That's that stretcher that the widow's boy is on, lifeless, shrouded in the burial cloth. And Jesus goes up to the, to the procession, and we read, Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, the widow, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the buyer. They were carrying him on. And the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among them, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So what does she need? Well, she needs so much because we don't get this either living in our day. So remember, there's no life insurance policies. There's no social security death benefit. So she didn't have a husband, and now her only remaining son is gone. That is her safety net. That is the hope still today of many, many people, most of the people in this world. They look to their children for their future security. She doesn't have that. She's overwhelmed with this double grief because as grief goes, we all know it. It like attaches to the griefs of the past. She's grieving her husband. She's grieving her only son. And her grief is then mixed with great fear. We can only imagine about what's going to happen to me. Who's going to take care of me? She needs comfort. She needs a helper. She needs provision for her uncertain future. But unlike the centurion story, she doesn't know Jesus is in the house, so to speak. She's not asking. She's not sending anybody for Jesus. He comes to her. What a beautiful picture. Almost a picture of the gospel in miniature. Moved with compassion. And he comes up to her and he says, don't cry. Now figure that out. Don't cry. That's an odd thing to say to a widow who's lost her only son. What do you mean, don't cry? That had to be going through her mind. Who are you? What are you saying? Don't cry. Well, it didn't take long for him to go and touch the buyer. Did he need to touch it? Is there any physical contact with the healing of the servant in verses 1 through 10? No. No. Was there any touching when he called Lazarus out of the grave? No. Jesus doesn't need to touch anything. Why, is he Why does Luke tell us he touched it? So remember, whenever we read a narrative, whenever we read a story, there are all kinds of details. So when there is a detail, why is it there? Why does it say Jesus touched the buyer? Well, let's go back and say first century, you're hearing Jesus touching the buyer. What are you doing? You're doing the same thing you did when you heard Luke say, he's going to the Gentiles' house. You go, oh, you're not doing that. What's wrong with touching the buyer? Who's on the buyer? A dead person. What is a dead person? Unclean. 
We go, well, these aren't the, this, what, what, uh, this ceremonial law. Was, I don't get it. Well, it was a huge thing for them. It was a huge thing. So when he identifies, when he touches the buyer, he is, man, he is crossing something that in their mind was like, you don't do that. There's laws about that. Jesus is saying, my heart transcends the ceremonial law. And I want you to know that I'm identifying with your suffering woman because I know your suffering has everything to do with what's on this stretcher, your son. And then he says, young man. So that young man lets us know he was a little older than a young boy, young child, but he wasn't yet married. Young man, maybe late teens, I say to you, get up. And if we were, if we were directing this film right now, where, where, where does the camera angle go? Does it start with the mother who's wailing and sobbing, go to shrieks of, I, I mean, what, what does that look like? Does it go to the, 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 the looks of amazement on the, those who are carrying the stretcher? Does it go to the, to the boy, the young man? Where, where does it go? I mean, just feel it. And the text says, they were overcome with awe. Some of your translations will say fear, the sense of worship. That this is like, who is this? What do they say? A prophet. But they, then they recognize, well, it's more than a prophet. It's God come to help us. God come to help us. What a great king. We should worship this one who has authority over sickness and even death. Even death. Well, it's no surprise. Verse 17 says, the news spread. Oh, my word. He raised a dead boy. I saw it with my own eyes. This is unbelievable. I mean, how many times do you flip through the channels and you come across some healing guy? When's the last time you saw someone raised from the dead on TV? I haven't. I'm not saying God can't do that today. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. This is big news. They're running through. And this news gets all the way to John the Baptist, who's no longer roaming around the wilderness. No, actually, John the Baptist has been in prison because we read back earlier in chapter 3 and 4 that he called out Herod, Antipas, for marrying his sister-in-law. And he's saying, that's wrong. And she hated that he was saying that. And so she got her men to throw him in the fortress, Machairos. Here's a picture of it. Way away. This is 100 miles away from Capernaum. 100 miles to the south and to the east, up on this hill. Here's a few remains of the fortress that was up there. And that's where John's doing life right now. And apparently he's got contact with his disciples because they come and they share the news. Verse 18, John's disciples told him all about these things. Calling two of them, he, John, sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, Here's his question. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? <laughs> so what did he just hear? Well, who is the pinnacle of the report? He raised 
a dead boy to life. And John has got a question that's just gnawed at him. Are you really the one? Like, what more did you want? Well, apparently a lot more. Apparently a lot more. I mean, he was so convinced about who he was. In fact, in John's account, in verses 132 through 34, he says at the end of verse 34, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. God told me that on the person that the Spirit descends upon, that's going to be the one that you're preparing the way for, the promised king, the Messiah. I saw the Spirit come down, and he declares that he's the one. And now he's going, I'm not sure. And he's saying that in the face of a report that just said, and by the way, not only has he been healing and doing all these awesome things, but he raises the dead too. And he says, well, go back and ask him. Are you the one, or should we be looking for someone else? Now, what is going on in John's life that this man who's been chosen by God, who is the promised forerunner, Jesus is going to say, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi in Malachi 3, chapter 1, how is it, and you can see that prophecy right there in verse 27, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's talking about John. This one, verse 28, he says that there is nobody alive at this point born of a woman who's greater than this man. How is it that this chosen one whose role was to prepare the way of Christ be in such a great crisis of faith where he's not sure he's the one anymore? The one that he announced to say, and he's the one. The one he said when he baptized him, I can't even untie your sandals. What do you mean? I can't, I can't baptize you, Jesus. Why is he now saying, are you really the one? Or do we, do we, did we just kind of not get it? Is there someone else? Well, the answer to the question has to do with location right now. Where is he? He's in a kind of a doubter's prison. He's in prison. He's not freely walking around the wilderness anymore. He's looking at life. Were there bars? I don't know. But it was clear that he was a man under arrest. He was prison. What did Jesus say about his ministry? When he opens up his ministry in Nazareth, quoting Isaiah 61, that he is going to bring in freedom and release for prisoners. That he's going to bring in this new year of the Lord's favor, a new day, a new way. He was going to bring judgment, John talked about in chapter 3, verse 17. And he was going to make things right. And what's going on with this Jesus? Because I'm a prisoner and not free. And I don't see the overthrow of Rome right now. He may have just heard the report about Jesus cozying up to a Roman centurion. He's going, I don't get it. I don't get it. The present realities of his hard circumstances were chipping away at his faith. And what he needs is an answer. And right now, the harsh realities of your life may be doing the same. You go, I've been, I've been faithfully serving you, Lord. I, as best as I can, not a perfect spouse, but I've tried to be faithful and now I've heard my spouse has been completely unfaithful and I'm discarded, I'm out. What's going on? 
Oh, Lord, we're not perfect parents, but all along we've been looking to you and pointing our kids to you and trying to parent by the book, and now our kids don't want anything about the book and they don't want anything about you. I don't get it, Lord. Lord Jesus, I came to you asking for help. I had these things that were just tearing my life and those around me apart. And, 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 and maybe you found yourself in something like Celebrate Recovery and you're getting hope and you're seeing stages of victory in your life and then it's just like all unwound and you're going, what's going on here? These demons of the past, they seem to be bigger than you. They're certainly bigger than me. Maybe you're not the one. Maybe there's someone else, something else. So let's note how Jesus responds. Verse 22. So he replied to the messenger who had come to Jesus asking the same question, are you the one? And at that very time where they came up to him, verse 21 tells us he was healing, right? Casting out demons. People were seeing that were blind. And so he says in verse 22, so go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Well, let's just note the grace of Christ, that what he doesn't say. Isn't it great that he's, he, he didn't get ticked off and go, and, and, and play the shame card and go, well, you know what, you just tell John. I'm really disappointed in you, John. Of all the people, I would have thought you would have got it right. I mean, you were the one who baptized me, and you did see the manifestation of the Spirit come down upon me. I think you heard the voice from heaven like I heard. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm really disappointed. Isn't it great that Jesus didn't go there? He's merciful to this man who's his follower, who should have known better, who's got real doubts, really struggling. And what does he say? He doesn't say, well, yes, just tell him, yes, I am. He could have said, yes, I am. But he, he makes it clear that his identity should be ratified and verified by the way he was living his life, his works, that his works were to ratify and assert his true identity. And when he lists off those who would be healed, whether it's the blind or the lame or the leper, he is, he is using all this Old Testament language that is all around Isaiah's prophecy to make it clear the stuff he's doing is the stuff that the Old Testament prophet said this Messiah would do. And the things he's talking about, you want to know who I am? You just follow my message and follow my ways, my miracles. His work would explain and ratify his identity. Maybe that was the dynamic of that little boy in London at the end of World War II. Orphans running around all over the place. A USGI hops out of his Jeep and he notices a little boy, assumed he was an orphan, with his nose pressed against the glass of the pastry shop. He's just longing for some food and for some pastries. So the soldier sees it, goes into the bakery and he buys a dozen of those donuts and he gives the whole bag to the boy. He felt really good 
just about doing something kind to this little boy. As he turned to walk away, going to his Jeep, he felt a tug on his coat. The little boy looked up to him and said, Mister, are you God? His work, his identity, that's where Jesus goes. Three goes. Just tell him what you see happening here. Tell him what you hear me preaching about. That'll be enough for John. That'll be enough for him. So Jesus blesses those who would not stumble on account of him. And then he goes on to talk about people who are stumbling. And that's how the last 11, 12 verses work out. So the the messengers go back to John. Verse 24, Jesus turns to the crowd. And he says, so why did you go out to see John? What do you think he was? Do you think he was just like this wimpy thing, like a a reed in the wind that didn't have any backbone? Or What what do you think you were going out to? Somebody who would be easily swayed and influenced? Did you think he's going to come out in fine clothing and show that he's royalty, a prince, or even a king? What did you go out to see? Wasn't it a prophet? Of course it was a prophet. And more than a prophet, he is the prophet that Malachi predicted this one who would come to make people ready and make a way to prepare people to meet the Lord's Savior. So if you understood that he was a prophet, why didn't you listen to him? Because that's what prophets do. They speak on God's behalf to you. Why didn't you listen to the prophet? That's where he's going here. And then in verse 29, Luke adds this. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged God's way was right. Who acknowledged God's way was right? Go back. Tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words. These are the wrong kinds of people. These are not good people. These are, these are you know, slime bag. These are scum people. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged God's way was right. Why did these group, all these people, and this is a subcategory you need to understand, all and every doesn't always mean all and every. It's all those who turn to Christ. But look at what it says here. They acknowledged God's way was right. Why? Because they've been baptized by John. I don't get it. What does that mean? Why do they, what does acknowledging God's way is right have to do with baptism? Because baptism, John's baptism, was a baptism of repentance, of saying, hey, you guys, you're going down the wrong way. That's not the right way. This is the right way. It was through repentance. The baptism symbolized that, that they acknowledged they're going the wrong way. They need to go God's way. Then there's another group, verse 30. But the Pharisees, ooh, these are the religious leaders. The people are looking for the Messiah. The experts in the law, the scribes, rejected God's purposes for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized. And we're again scratching our heads. Okay, we get it now. Because they didn't see that they were going in the wrong way, trusting in their own righteous acts. They didn't even have the heart of of God in their own hearts. Their hearts were dead. They didn't think they needed to turn. They thought they were on the right way and Jesus was on the wrong way. And so they rejected Christ. And then Jesus uses this metaphor, this little story. He says, let me tell you about that generation, the people that reject it. It's just like the kids in the market. And one of them has a flute, one of them has a recorder, and they start to play a tune that you ought to dance to because it's got dance all over the rhythm and the feel of the song, but no one's dancing. And the same group of kids, and one of them knows how to play a dirge, a sad song, even a funereal kind of a a song. 
in a minor key and no one's wailing. What's he saying? Nobody's responding to John and me. We're playing this music from God and nobody is listening to it, hearing it. In fact, they don't understand who we are. They think John is a demonized man and they see me as a drunkard, as a glutton, as someone who hangs out with sinners. And then he ends, but he says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Wisdom is proved right. God's way is wisdom. Is proved to be the right way as the children of God, as those who follow this way of wisdom, live their life wisely and show that it is true. This is the right way. This is the right way. So let's bring it home. What in your life are you facing today that's bigger than you? Something you can't fix. Who are you turning to? Luke's saying to us, consider Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Look, he's he's got authority over all things, even death. He, He is God. He's got a heart of compassion. Not only does he enter into your suffering and identify with, but he actually can do something about it. Turn to Jesus. Are we turning to Jesus? That's not like a one-time thing and a bad day kind of thing. It's an everyday kind of thing. Are we turning to Jesus? Have we submitted everything to his loving leadership? Are we holding back thinking that somehow I've got a better answer for this part of my life? Give it all up to him. What's my take on Jesus? Am I someone who's rejecting him? Am I someone who's acknowledging him? Am I trusting him for every area of my life or just holding back some areas of my life? And by the grace grace of God, let's be people who take this path of wisdom and are the children of wisdom that prove it right as we cross the racial and gender barriers that are mentioned here in this text with mercy and grace, as we touch the hopeless, identifying with their suffering, as we're gentle with the weak. Let's pray. Lord, we remember the words of Paul who says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would believe this Christmas season that your son is God in the flesh who's come to help us, all of us, with authority over all things. And so, Lord, grow in us a greater desire to to submit completely to your loving leadership. And help us by the power of your spirit, even the helper that you sent for us, to take the path and to live mercifully for all, regardless of race, position, or faith, and to prove your ways right to a group of people that we pass every day who have all kinds of needs and desires for help and don't even know about you. May our work for you in your power, for your glory, point to your great son, our helper. Amen.